Jesus the Lord saves. And how did he do that? Did he do that from afar? Did he do that from a distance? Did he do it by flicking a switch? No, he did it by becoming Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Let me put this down while I just read those well-known verses from John's Gospel when he talks about the coming of the Word. John 1 verse 10. I'll just read it. Don't need to turn to it. Um, He came into the very world. That's Jesus. He, the Word, came into the very world he created. But the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. So Jesus knew what it was to be rejected, didn't it? To be an outcast. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a a birth that comes from God. And in this well-known verse, So the word became human and made his home among us. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> didn't realize my voice was going to give up. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. Emmanuel. God with us. In the 1800s, there was a, a Belgian... Catholic priest I won't give you his Belgian name because I can't remember his um, but he was, came to be known as Father Damien and in his 20s he went out to Hawaii not a bad place to go you might think as a missionary but for him having spent just a few years in Hawaii he then went to another island and on that island um, there was a village a very different sort of village because it was a leper colony and in this leper colony there was about 600 people when he went (coughs) living in abject poverty there's virtually no medical resources um, and they no education and these were lepers of all ages from children through adults and uh, he went to live with them and he lived with them for in the end for 16 Yes, he did amazing things. He helped build schools. He did his best to improve the medical facilities. He learnt the language um, so he could communicate with them and obviously he preached and took services and whatever else. And he touched them. He was told not to touch them but he did. And he ate with them. And he hugged them. And they came to love him. It became a place of hope instead of a place where you just died. After he'd been there 11 years, he stood up on a Sunday morning to take the service like this. And he started his sermon with these words. We lepers, because that week he found out that he'd contracted 
I think it's Hansen's disease, isn't it? But leprosy. It spilt some boiling water from the kettle. No, it wasn't a kettle, I'm sure. It spilt some boiling water, rather, um, on his hands. And he hadn't felt it. And he realized that he was now a leper. And so he started his sermon by saying, We lepers. You see, now he had become truly one of them in every respect. He would live the next few years as a leper. And he would die as a leper. He had become with them, with us, in every sense of the word. And that's a wonderful picture, I think. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of God with us. He didn't just come and live amongst us. He didn't just sort of come and live on the fringes and order things or whatever else. He came and lived as one of us. He entered right into our world, <coughs> the broken world that it is, and into people with broken lives. And he became fully human. And we see that, don't we, through his life. From becoming that bump in Mary's uh, body that Joseph obviously saw and became concerned about and was going to cause him to divorce her, to that little defenseless, totally dependent baby like any other baby. And yet, after six weeks, when they, they go into the temple uh, to give thanks for his, give, for, for his birth, Simeon can look at that little, little weakling baby, like every other baby, and say um, that he's seen the salvation that God had promised. Salvation you've prepared for all the people. And he's a child growing up in Nazareth, growing up in every way. And then... Luke records this one verse, doesn't he? The only verse we know about him between the ages of 12 and 30. And this is a summary, in a sense, of those 18 years, perhaps, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in his awareness, and we can't put this into words, he grew in his awareness of that he was God, that he, who he was as God, as well as being a, a human being. You notice that? He also grew in favor with man. He wasn't disconnected. He, wasn't, he was part of that community in Nazareth. <coughs> and then when he begins his ministry, don't we, from age 30, we see him spending his, his time, his, virtually all of his time, with this group of disciples, living with them day in, day out. Yeah, okay. There were times when we know, well, often regularly, it says often he would take himself away early in the morning and pray to be with his father. But most of his life was lived in close community with these people. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever lived, other than in your immediate family, I don't know if you've ever lived in close community with a group of other people. You soon begin to, it's like when you go on holiday with friends, isn't it? You soon to begin to realize, actually, you see things that you hadn't seen before. And they see things about you that they hadn't seen before. He lived in close community with these disciples. And what could, what could one of those disciples say, when he, which we've already read, when he, when he looked back, when he looked on Jesus' life, 
and lived with him for all of those hours, all of, through all the difficulties, all the, all the external pressures. What could he say of Jesus? He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. That was his summary description of what, it was, of what the Lord Jesus was like. This God with us, this man with us. God with us as a man amongst us. That's what he was like. But he didn't just confine himself, did he, to the disciples. He lived an open life. A life that was open to other people. Including the people that were the outcasts. Including the people who were on the edges. They were welcomed in. He was eating with them. That's why they said this guy, this guy is a drunkard and a glutton. Hopefully could not be said about us last night eating curry. But this guy is a drunkard and a glutton. Look at him, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. In fact, somebody said about Luke's gospel, <coughs> if you read Luke's gospel, a theme right the way through Luke's, Luke's gospel is Jesus eating. He's either going somewhere to eat or he's eating with somebody or he's leaving somewhere he's just eaten. And do you know what? They were nearly always at other people's places. Well, they were at other people's places because he didn't have a home of his own. So he's been invited in and eating with other people. He lived with people. And as I said, the people including those on the edges. The woman at the well. Blind Bartimaeus. The lepers. The woman who had a hemorrhage. All of those people isolated in different ways and many others. And that's what God with us looks like. That's what God with us looks like. So, the God who, the Jesus, the Lord who saves people from their sins so that their relationship with him can be restored is the God with us who comes and lives amongst us and, and has and enjoys those relationships. <coughs> makes those relationships. He was born on earth, into an earthly family. But as we read in John, we are born into his family. We are born, reborn into his family. Not with a physical birth, but a birth that comes from God. <clears throat> to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, a birth that comes from God. He becomes our father. And we become his children. We have a home. <coughs> it's a personal salvation. But it's more than a personal salvation, isn't it? We come to him as individuals. But we're born into a family. It is a social gospel. <coughs> I'm using that, not in the way that it became a problem in the past. It's a social gospel because it affects every aspect of our lives. And it affects our relationships. And as we sort out, as our relationship with God is put right, then other relationships fall into place. Sorry. Seriously, it's right. This. Look for yourself. 
and you will find loneliness and despair. How many people are looking for themselves in our society? Looking for what is missing. Trying to find out what it is that's, that's wrong, that's out of place, that's out of sorts in their lives. How many people are doing that? And if you do that, as C.S. Lewis says, you won't find the answer. And if you look hard, you'll find something, but you'll find loneliness and despair because you will not find the answer. But look for Christ, and you will find him and everything else. And the everything else includes our relationships with one another. We're born into a family of believers, a community of lepers. That's what we are. Sometimes we forget that. We're a community of lepers that have been saved by grace. We're no different. We're no better than the lepers that we see outside. The only difference is that we found the grace of God, or rather the grace of God has found us. But God wants those other lepers to come to know him as well, to be called into relationship with him. We've received God's grace. And this family is called the church. The church. Not a place where we, where we just meet on Sundays, or even in home groups. That's part of it. But we're born into a family. We're born into a body. And the body is the church. And it is so much more and services. Although it's really important that we meet together and worship together and whatever else. But it is so much more than that. And I'm so grateful. As I was thinking about this, because <coughs> <coughs> it's sometimes easy to see the, the weaknesses of, of our family, our church family. But I'm so grateful for the church. I really am. I am grateful. I'm grateful for the families that cared for us when we were children without a mother. That took us in. Literally, at times. That took us on holiday. They were part of the church family. I'm grateful for our youth leaders that invited Kim and I into their homes. I'm grateful to Albert who took me fishing. And not just me, but other guys. Even though we were an absolute pain in the neck and he spent half the time trying to sort us out. I'm grateful to all those people that have encouraged me, welcomed us here and other places. You know, we have so much, don't we, to be thankful for, for the church. There's people, if only they knew what the church would offer. As many of those lonely people would want to say, yeah, actually, I'd buy into that. I'd like to be part of that. <coughs> and that's just, in a sense, in terms of its relationships. Although it's much more than that. And that, because of the church, the reality is I've not, therefore, experienced the loneliness that I probably would have. There are times we all feel lonely, a bit cut off, a bit isolated. That's true for us all. But because of the church... I can be thankful to God that I've not known and experienced the loneliness that many people, I'm sure, by the looks of it, and obviously do, experience.
But there is a but. And a but that I need to take note of and a but that all of us need to. Because the loneliness epidemic is caused by our individualism, our materialism. That it was Adam and Eve's individualism, the pursuit of their goal that caused them to lose fellowship and be separated from God. And people in our society, they have become the twin gods. Individualism, I do, I live my life the way that I want to live it for my ends. That's what it's all about. And therefore, materialism, I'll hold on to what I've got and I'll get as much as I can to actually support me in, in those things. And that has affected church. And it has affected Abbey Church as it's affected every other church. So we see church, you know, we could give many examples of this. So we see church now as something that we just do on Sundays. Do you know what? We don't even see it as that. We think, well, this Sunday I'll come and next Sunday I won't. And actually, I don't like that church, so I'll try the one down the road. That's individualism at work. And then, well, the other thing is, I know the Bible says a lot about hospitality, but do you know what? My home is my own. My home is my bolt home. It's my, it's my little castle. And I'm going to pull up that drawbridge and nobody else is going to cross it apart from the postman who can bring me the letters every day as a Christmas card. It's, it's not a place where actually other people are welcome. It's just for me and my family. And that's one of the, that's one of the, that's one of the things that's happened within our society. And, and those of us who are older and those of us that are older than me will look back to times... When things were different within our neighbourhoods, I know we can see with rose-tinted specks, but you, there were times when neighbours talked to each other across their fences. Even I can remember conversations going four gardens down because the fences were only this big. And you'd have people in each garden talking to each other. We don't do that now, partly because the fences are six or eight foot tall, but also because we don't just engage with our neighbours. Me first. And the other thing is, you know, you put my family first. So the focus now is all around the nuclear family. That's where it's all at. And yes, God has said we should care for our families. We are, there's a mandate that we're, we're responsible for our children, our spouses, our parents. That's, those are God-given responsibilities. But there's something, you know, folks, that actually transcends all of that. And you know what it is? It's simply this, that Jesus said, you to love one another as I have loved you. And he wasn't talking about families. He was talking about the family. The family, actually, that will exist throughout eternity. The family of God and nuclear families will not exist in eternity as they are now. I'm sure we'll recognize one another. But actually, God's idea is far bigger than the nuclear family. God's family is the community of God's people. And we are called now, now to anticipate and to work out what actually will become a reality and it's always for We are called to love one another now. And loving one another cannot just be about turning up on church on Sunday mornings. And I've been convicted about some of these things myself, so I'm not just talking to you. We're called to love one another. That is to be the hallmark of the Christian family, of God's family. And that transcends, that overrides everything to do with our nuclear families. Our children and our parents and our, and our spouses 
do not come above that. And that's affected the church just like it's affected our wider society. And it's a challenge, a challenge for Kim and I, as well as we talk about how much time, therefore, do we spend within the, our own family, but what about, what about everybody else? And Paul writes a lot about that, doesn't he, in his letters to the churches, about what it is to love one another. You could look at passages in every single epistle that talk about this. Here's a short one from Romans chapter 12, as you probably know. So don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. <coughs> Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. And when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And hospitality isn't, by the way, just inviting people into your home, although that's obviously within it. But we can be hospitable. Jesus, as I said, didn't have a home to invite anybody to. But he was still hospitable. So no one should have no one in the church. Not just at Christmas. Jesus, not Jesus rather, but that wonderful line in the psalm, Psalm 68 verse 5. He puts the lonely in families. And right the way through the scripture, don't we, we see, right the way through the scripture, we see that God is concerned about, about the orphan, about the widow, about the alien. That runs all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. God was always, and we see it in Jesus' life, concerned about those people, seemed to have a special concern in a sense. For them. What about outside the church? Well, this is just a wrap up. Here's some statistics. 40% of older people, that's about 4 million, say TV is their main companion or main company. Over half a million older people do not see anyone for at least five days every week. It's not just older people. Nine million people, are, are, this was a big survey, are either always or often lonely. That's the population the size of London. Are either always or often lonely. Do you get that? Do I get that? Up to 50% of people with disabilities are lonely on any given day. And here's the one that surprised me perhaps the most. Young people aged 16 to 24 feel more lonely than any other age group within our society. There it is. Nearly 10% <coughs> of 16 to 24-year-olds. Only 3% of those over 65. But of course there are large numbers and they have physical reasons as well that affect their isolation. And here's what the, uh, the Times said in response to that survey just this year. Bring back youth clubs to help lonely millennials, experts say. Perhaps that's something for us to think about. So these are statistics, <coughs> but they represent real people. 
that means, I guess, there's somebody going to be living very close to me who's lonely, always or often. There's going to be somebody living, um, somebody in your workplace or your school, if you're talking about those 16 to 24-year-olds, who are lonely. They might not, might not be showing it. They might be hiding it well behind their FaceTime and all the rest of it. Not FaceTime, that's us, isn't it? Facebook. <coughs> We're FaceTimers, but not Facebookers. And the question is really simply, isn't it? How do we do respond? How do we respond? How would God us respond? So when he sends out his disciples, and he said, I'm going to be with you all the days, all the ways, all the time. Go and carry on my mission. How does that Spirit of God that's, that he sent to be with them and is with us, how does he live this out in this world in which we live? And I think we need to be, I think I, and <laughs> anybody else, I think we need to begin to face up to this more seriously. It's a real issue. And so when we started at the church meeting talking about the four R's, which Graham did mention two weeks ago, and can I quickly remember them? Relationship, I've got to always remember that one. Respect, relevance, response. Under that, we're saying that the relationships that we have, that, and the relationships that we should look to make as a church, and with a priority for those outside the church, should be really important. And we need to turn from looking inwards and start looking more outwards. And we need to believe that the God with us, who promised to be with those disciples, and whose promise is carried through to us, through his, his word to us, will change the way that we think, and change our hearts in terms of our desires, and cause us to act. so that we together become more of the body of Christ, so that that hallmark of loving one another, which is, which is key to the absolute essence of our life as a family, will be more evident to those outside. And that we as a church will seek to engage with, connect with those people around us that, are, that really are lost and lonely because that's what Jesus the God with us did and we're to follow in his footsteps and as we do so I'm sure God will bless us individually and as a church